It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Cindy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. As we go into Mother's Day weekend, let us recommit our efforts and support to ensure that every birthing person across this nation is empowered and feels safe. We have not created an infrastructure to support birthing people. All pregnant and birthing people deserve to be treated with love. Birthing while Black should not be a death sentence. Health equity for Black birthing people is attainable. Mothers and babies and Black birthing people are important. We desperately need long-term fixes to support the healthcare needs of Black women and birthing people. The most marginalized, Black and Indigenous birthing people. To systemically shift the way we approach health care for birthing people of color. And respectful of Black women and birthing people. The maternal mortality crisis among Black birthing people in the United States. Black birthing people and birthing people. For birthing people. Black birthing people. And our Black birthing persons. For all birthing persons in Louisiana. That birthing people want doulas and midwives. In support for birthing people during the postpartum period. There are not enough black workers of color leaving black birthing people with limited autonomy or opportunity to receive racially concordant care. Protect black birthing people and to save lives. Thank you and I yield back. All right, so I don't know if you heard this yesterday. It was Mother's Day yesterday and I don't know if you heard happy birthday birthing person. Oh, no, happy, happy birthing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Happy birthing people's day. You birthing person, uh, happy happy birthing, not happy birth, happy birthing, sorry. Happy birthing, People's Day. Did you hear that yesterday? And why would black women be in that lineup and black men? Why is that a black thing? Because it sounds a radical, like, you know, a few white people are a little radical right now, too, so why them? It's uh, kind of bizarre, and it can be kind of funny, but it isn't funny. And I think uh, the roots of that, as I listen to that, the roots of that go back to Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was established and founded by black transgender females, and they have a grip on public policy right now, a major grip. So what would black black uh, transgender females want to be called if they were pregnant? They would be wanting to be called a, a birthing people, a birthing person, a birthing people, because they wouldn't want to assign gender, uh, and they wouldn't want to be assigned any kind of role in a relationship. It's just bizarre. It's the deconstruction of the norm, of the norm, and as funny as it sounds, it's becoming mainstream. And so there we go. But I'll stick with Happy Mother's Day since it is natural and normal and the other is absurd. Happy Mother's Day to all of you from yesterday. I hope you had a good one. I had a lonely one because all my kids are <laughs> overseas in Scotland and they have been for a long time. Haven't seen them in a year and a half, So, uh, but I hope to see them soon and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Or not today, but in the future days I'll talk to you about that. All right, so um, I just want you to know that people around the country are getting fed up. Uh, they are taking their cities, their 
boards back, and there are various issues that are doing this, but this was the sound of a group of parents at a school board meeting in Utah recently. Let's listen. Participation. Quinder, I move that we adjourn this meeting. I'll second. We have a motion to adjourn and a second. All in favor, say aye. They're going to leave. Release the mask mandate now. They're talking about their kids, and they're mad. They're very mad, and so people across the country are taking back their school boards. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, In a Dallas suburb just a few days ago, there was kind of a revolt against the critical race theory curriculum. It's um, the South Lake elections, or what they're called. NBC reported it as bitterly divided, but actually 70% of the people in that district voted against a whole slate of candidates from the mayor's race to the school board and city council, uh, who all supported the diversity plan that pushed critical race theory on students and faculty, and the turnout for the election was very high. It was not divided at all, as uh, NBC uh, indicated in their reports, bitterly divided. It was an absolute landslide. And so um, that's just one case. I talked to you about Waukesha, Wisconsin, that had a recent election. They organized and they took back 85% of the seats in that particular election. And I've been telling you, uh, and uh, repeatedly, many of you have responded, that that is what we can do. When we talk about what we can do, we can take back our local, take back the power where we live. And I don't mean power for power's sake. I'm talking about power for good. Uh, I'm talking about taking, stopping these radical leftists from uh, dictating policy in your own schools. Uh, and it's time to actually get a little mad and take it back. And then on the election, I want to bring you up to date because this is the same thing but different. This is in Aberdeen, Mississippi. Uh, there, is, there was an election for Ward 1 alderman. And a judge, uh, Judge Jeff Weil, is calling for a new election because he found evidence of fraud and criminal activity in how absentee ballots were handled, how votes were counted, and the actions by some at the polling place. And I don't have time to go into all of that, uh, but he's turned that thing around. There will be a re-election because people are actually doing something. A judge is actually doing something. And in Wyndham, New Hampshire, who would have thought? In Wyndham, New Hampshire, people are organizing for a 2020 ballot audit. So let me read this to you. A long way from, this is by the, the Sundance. I haven't read anything to you from him in a long time because he was taken off uh, of the social media outlets, and now he's appearing again. Uh, um, a long way from Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, a similar ballot recount battle has been underway. In the latest local developments, the election board, and this again is Wyndham, New Hampshire, was taken to task by a committed group of residents in Wyndham, New Hampshire. The citizens fought hard for an audit team they could trust. The result was a third auditor with strong credentials and has, who has been successfully appointed by the previously reluctant board. A statistics professor has been named as the third and final member of a panel facing a May 27th deadline to audit the November 2020 state representative election in Wyndham. Um, and this is what I want to read this. We will do our work in such a way that nobody will have to trust any of us. Philip Stark of the University of California, Berkeley, said Wednesday, they can look at what was done rather than who did it. 
A hand recount about three weeks after the election night determined that the four Wyndham Republicans running for House seats each received about 300 more votes than were reported from automatic AccuVote counting machines. Governor Chris Sununu last month signed legislation that mandates the forensic audit. So they're getting their recount of the 2020 election. And on this uh, sheet that Sundance included is this just great little piece it's like a little bit of poetry. It shows a patriot, but with a flag behind him. He's got the tri, you know, the the uh, three cornered hat, uh, and he's holding a gun. And it says, "I am an American and a patriot. I am my country's keeper. The president and Congress report to me, and so I will stay informed and involved. Ignorance, apathy, and complacency are my enemy. I will make my voice heard, and not just at election time." Silence is the same as consent in the face of oppression. I can make a difference. I matter. I am an American and a patriot. By the way, if we can find a way, we'll put that on our Facebook page because I think it's worth sharing. It's just a beautiful rendering, and it's uh, it's true. We are a country of the people, by the people, and for the people. And as long as we have breath, we should fight uh, the the uh, this attempt to rule us with tyranny. It's just not going to go down, not without a fight. Is it going to go down without a fight? So organize where you are. Many of you have been writing me. I, uh, South Dakota, they're working on elections out there and uh, places in Wisconsin, all over the country, people have contact. And by the way, if you're a person in a state uh, who has uh, the wherewithal to organize and you want to know how to do that, I will put you in touch uh, with Terry Dietrich who is already uh, gathering the information. They did it successfully in Waukesha. He's got a great template, and uh, I will put you in touch with him. So it's sandy at AFR.net, sandy at AFR.net. Now back to uh, I, Maricopa County, which I'm fascinated with. Uh, they're the conducting that huge audit of the 2020 election in their big stadium. And they're in the big stadium because the election officials – the local ones would not let them use the official county counting center, and so they had to move them to this big stadium. So what's happened with that? Well, let me just say that the DOJ has sent a letter. I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this. The DOJ, let me just read this. Uh, The Civil Rights Division of the DOJ, led by heaven knows who right now, has sent a letter to the Arizona State Senate claiming their review of uh, lawfare statements and media reports may show evidence of auditing issues that violate federal laws. Last week, a group of lawfare activists, including New York University Law School, which leads to Andrew Andrew Weissman, Andrew was, you know, the lead attorney on the uh, Mueller investigative team, asked the DOJ to get involved. The ridiculous letter from the Biden DOJ goes on to cite media reports from the Washington Post as evidence to justify their involvement. So now the DOJ is saying falsely that Arizona might be breaking federal law. So they've sent the letter. I don't know what's going to happen from that. At this point, uh, with the count, the um, the Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County uh, has been stalling. They've been stalling for months. That's been part of the problem. And a judge finally issued a subpoena that they had to turn over everything. And they did, except for the routers. And now they're resisting. They're saying that the routers contain, you know, uh, information that should not get out to the public. And so it's all going to have to go back before that judge again to decide if the routers are under the initial ruling of the judge who said, no, you have to turn everything over. Stop stalling. It's really turning into a real drama out there. We need to pray for people like Jay Kaufman, who's been our guest more than once, a young freshman uh, legislator in the Arizona House 
Uh, and he's not the only one, of course. There are others pushing and pushing for this, fighting for it, and they are such a long way. They're doing the count in that big center. They have um, security. They're doing it right. And uh, I think the left is really frightened. It might undermine, you know, the big lie that there was nothing nefarious in the election of 2020. Uh, that is the big lie, by the way. I, I don't know if you got that memo. They t- they want to tell us that the big lie, you know, is that there was any kind of election chicanery in 2020. We all know that's not true. Most of us, and I think even reasonable people on the left, uh, would have to give a nod to the fact that something was not right about what happened on election night of 2020. And so people around the country are actually doing something wonderful, and I'm hoping that you will catch the vision and to take the, take the bull by the horns, take the reins where you live, and uh, turn things around. I know you can do that. Um, uh, let's see, do we have time for this report? Mm, maybe not. I just, I'll just tell you this story. The pastor in Calgary that we talked about uh, who was Polish, and he, on Palm Sunday, the police and met and health officials, you know, health ofi- health official slash policeman, uh, broke into his church uh, and tr- tried to shut down the service. And he was furious. They called them Nazi. You Nazis! You Nazis! Uh, I want to play a clip later when we have a chance. Uh, he was on with uh, uh, Sean Hannity, and he talked about his background gl- growing up in Poland, his experience. Uh, an understanding of how the how the communists worked and the Nazis worked, and just uh, he spoke with the passion that you would expect in his exchange with Sean. Well, a few days ago he was arrested, and there's a video of it. Uh, he's in a car with two other men, and they bring up like seven police vehicles, and they line up behind him, and they they um, arrest him. They drag him down the street and put him in the the car, it's just, it's pretty distressing. And the reason they did that is because he was refusing to comply uh, with their rules, their draconian rules to shut churches down over COVID. And so um, uh, that's what's happening to him. We need to keep him in our prayers and also the people of Canada because they are experiencing much more authoritarian, draconian uh, enforcement than we are even in this country. So um, all right, when we come back, uh, Nikki Gosar joins us. She testified before Congress last week on so-called red flags when it com- red flag laws when it comes to gun ownership. It's a fascinating her personal story is fascinating, and she will be joining us next. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. How would you describe your health care? If you're like most Americans these days, the word affordable isn't top of mind. Well, here's some good news. There's actually a trusted health care option that is affordable. It's called MediShare. Unlike insurance, MediShare is a Christian health care sharing ministry. Hundreds of thousands of believers across America who share each other's medical bills. For over 25 years, they've trusted in the MediShare model because it works. You'll be amazed at what you'll save, up to 500 bucks every month. And here's the best part. Because MediShare is based on biblical principles, you never pay for things that go against your beliefs. MediShare is affordable health care for Christians. Call 833-44-BIBLE to find out how much you can save on your health care. MediShare. Call 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray 
A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Allison Barkoff, Acting Administrator and Assistant Secretary for Aging at the Department of Health and Human Services. She provides advice on issues affecting people with disabilities and older adults. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 reminds us of the importance of honoring our elders. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Allison Barkoff in her work at HHS. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. Are you looking for a university that provides a quality Christian education with excellent academic and athletic programs? Well, I want to invite you to visit Liberty University, where they offer multiple visiting opportunities to fit your schedule. Plan a visit to their Central Virginia campus and stay for an afternoon, a day, or an entire weekend. You can also take a virtual tour from the comfort of your own home. Plan your visit today by texting "Go Visit" to the number 49596. Again, that's "Go Visit" to the number 49596. For the past 30 years, thousands of veterans have rolled into Washington, D.C. on Memorial Day, a motorcycle ride to honor our fallen military heroes. Republican and Democrat administrations have signed off on permits to allow Rolling Thunder to ride through the streets of our nation's capital, but not this year, not under the Biden administration. The Pentagon revoked AMBET's permit, citing concerns about the China virus. Florida Congressman Brian Mast is among those stunned by the news. Congressman Mast, a wounded warrior, an Army veteran who lost both his legs while serving in Afghanistan. He summed up the decision by pointing out that in Joe Biden's America, it's easier to cross the border illegally than it is to get a permit to pay our respects to fallen heroes. President Biden should intervene and immediately reverse the Pentagon's order. It's the right thing to do, but he probably thinks rolling thunder is a springtime weather anomaly. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Ms. Gozer, I'm very touched by your testimony as I as I, I read, read through your written testimony. Um, I, I uh, couldn't help but notice that um, as you're talking about difficult things and the difficult circumstance in which you had to witness your own husband's murder, even while you um, had a firearm and had access to it, but you chose to comply with the law, uh, your assailant did not. And I, I think you summarized it extremely well with just a few words. I obeyed that gun control law. My stalker did not. I don't think I've found any one sentence that better summarizes the need to respect the Second Amendment, the need to protect due process, and also the dilemma that we face uh, uh, and that we have to take into account whenever we choose to enact laws infringing upon those rights. Uh, I, I, it sounds to me like you, um, you would likely agree with the proposition that it's it's not a cost-free um, action for the government to take. 
that in the name of protecting people from the horrors of gun violence, government can also inflict violence. Would you care to elaborate on that based on your experience? Well, I think that there's some laws that are are, um, created that just they have unintended consequences. I think some of these gun control laws were created thinking that, you know, we're going to protect people. And um, unfortunately, it can make some people out there vulnerable so that they can't protect themselves and their loved ones. All right, that was uh, the sound of Senator Mike Lee asking questions in the uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution. And this was a hearing on red flag laws, and the person whose voice you heard was Nikki Goser, uh, and she joins us now. Nikki is the Executive Director of Crime Prevention Research, and she's the author of a book called Stalked and Defenseless. Uh, Nikki, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Nikki, let's just make it real simple for a second. This was a hearing on red flag laws in a word or in a sentence. What are red flag laws? Uh, They're unconstitutional. (laughs) Um, Red flag laws, basically, if if you are concerned that someone is a a danger to themselves or others, basically, you can go file a complaint. And it's basically just a piece of paper that's in front, put in front of a judge saying that, you know, we think you might be dangerous. And law enforcement comes to your home, knocks on your door, and they are there to confiscate your guns. They are taken from you before there is any due process. There is no hearing first. You don't get to face uh, the person making the complaint first. You actually have no idea why your guns are being taken. And you have to wait for weeks or maybe even months before you get to make your case and um, you're, you're disarmed first. You're, you're, you're guilty until, <laughs> like, it's, it's not innocent until proven guilty. You're, you're, you're guilty until you prove that uh, you're innocent. And it's incredibly wrong. I think that we must have due process um, I believe that mental health experts should absolutely be involved if we're talking about mental health. And, um, you know, I don't have $10,000 in my savings account to pay for a legal defense. Uh, under red flag laws, you're responsible to pay that. And uh, I think it's incredibly wrong. It's unfair. It's burdensome. We already have laws on the books right now across the nation mostly known as the Baker Act. I would encourage people to look it up. Every state has a law similar to the Baker Act, but it basically does what they're wanting to do with red flag laws, only it includes due process. Mental health experts are involved, and if you cannot afford an attorney, one is provided for you. So why in the world are we trying to expand red flag laws in this country when we already have laws on the book that honor... Mm -hmm our rights and our constitution. Nikki, we'll come back. Let's come back. We'll come back to that in more detail. And I I do want to know, are the occasion of this testimony, is there something pending? Is there a federal red flag law? Are these state laws? What what was the catalyst for this hearing? They're basically trying to um, encourage other states to start their own red flag laws. Uh, They want it across the nation. They want to encourage states 
to come up with their own red flag laws. And um, I, I see it as wasteful. Um, I see it as unconstitutional. Uh, it concerns me because I think that they are ripe for abuse. Uh, why would we be wanting to expand red flag laws? We, like I said, we already have laws on the books uh, that follow the Constitution, offer due process, mental health experts, and if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. It makes no sense. Why are we reinventing the wheel? Yeah, it, well, you know, we it, it makes laws. Yeah, and um, Nikki, that reminds me a lot of when Obamacare was established and they authorized ask, you know, wanted doctors to ask even children, is there a gun in your home? And, and there just any excuse to go in if there's depression or uh, I think mental health experts have been encouraged to report people who are, it's very, the standard is all over the map and thus therein lies the danger. But uh, let's let's come back to even that. Because um, the reason your testimony was so powerful, Nikki, is because of your own personal experience. And uh, I know you've, uh, it's not, it can't be easy to tell this story. It's probably easier to read it from a script. But I want to talk to you woman to woman about what happened to you and your husband back in the year 2009, your husband, Ben. Uh, Can you, um, can you, I know that you were uh, out that evening in a gun-free zone, but uh, it's not in your testimony. Can you say where? Can you provide more detail about that? Yeah, it was a, um, it was a restaurant slash sports bar. Um, They served full meals. We had actually just had dinner uh, that night. But they also serve alcohol. So in the state of Tennessee at that time, um, if you were in a restaurant that served alcohol, you could not carry for your own self-defense. I had my handgun carry permit, but because of Tennessee state law at the time, I had to leave my legal permitted firearm that I normally carried for self-defense locked inside of my vehicle that night. I obeyed that gun control law. Um, right. So, so what happened? Unfortunately, just, yeah, but you, you you didn't know what was going to come. You guys are just out for dinner, and so so how you're sitting there talking with your husband? What happened? Actually, we were running our mobile karaoke show. Um, we eaten dinner first, and we had a contract with this restaurant to run karaoke every Thursday night. So that's what we were doing. We were several hours. Um, into the show, I believe, or at least an hour and a half. I think it was an hour and a half. Anyway, a man that was stalking me came in, and I realized that night this guy stalking me. He was a karaoke customer that had become very creepy and inappropriate. Uh, I had deleted him from my social media. Ben had asked him to please leave me alone, and he shows up. And I realized, okay, this guy is stalking me. So I asked management to please remove him. And when they approached him and asked him to leave, he pulled a forty-five from under his jacket, a handgun. And he came up behind Ben and shot him in the head, stood over Ben and continued to fire six more rounds in him. And, um, of course, I witnessed this in horror along with 50 other witnesses. Um, and nobody had a gun. And, and, no, and nobody had a gun because you can't carry guns in that restaurant, right? Except for your fear criminal. Exactly. 
So I'll probably wonder for the rest of my life if I could have prevented that, um, if anyone else could have prevented that. But, um, you know, well, you, I'll never know. In your testimony, you talk about how this this gentleman, uh, even though you didn't know a lot about him at the time, you felt uncomfortable with him. And so in looking back, you guys found out that there were signs there were signs with him of irrational anger or whatever. Can you just talk about that for a second? Yeah. Um, I had learned during the murder trial, actually, that there were signs um, for years before he ever crossed our path. Uh, He had threatened to kill his own secretary at his job in Florida he was from Florida, and um, he apparently had taken a shotgun out of his home and went and shot at these innocent hunters that were hunting uh, near his property. They were not on his property, but out of anger, he started shooting at them. And uh, when I heard that, I was just floored. How there were, and those are just a few examples. There were many examples, but people in his life, coworkers, friends, family, they all knew of these signs, and nobody did anything. I mean, Florida had the uh, Baker Act at the time. You know, these people in his life could have Baker Acted him. Um, plus, you so, know, at that point, I mean, hello, you're threatening the life. Of someone, you're saying you're going to kill your secretary, and then you're firing a gun at people. That's a crime. I mean, at that point, he should have been arrested, charged, and convicted, and he would have been a then been a prohibited person. He wouldn't have been allowed to possess or purchase firearms. But regardless of that, I mean, all of these people in his life, they could have Baker acted him. So, Nikki, let's stop for just a second and flesh that Baker out a little bit. Because I never, honestly, I certainly know about the Baker shooting, and I knew that the whole family went into a, uh, they went into a hyperdrive to get some gun restrictions. But the Baker Act, explain what that is, and it is a federal law or state law? State law, and every state has a law similar to it. Um, you know, it's basically an involuntary commitment law. Different states call it different things, um, but it's basically involuntary commitment laws. And um, there's an option in every state. And like I said, it includes due process. The person is, is put on a 72, generally, it's different for different states, but in general, just to give you a basic description, the person is put on a 72-hour hold. There is a mental health expert that evaluates them thoroughly <laughs> during that time. And then evidence, along with the mental health expert evidence, is pr- provided to a judge. That person goes before the judge, and the judge makes a decision. Is this person dangerous? Is this person totally innocent? Are these charges bogus? If they are, then, of course, nothing's going to happen to the person um, quite frankly, something should happen to the person who made the bogus complaint, but, uh, the judge has a whole 
list of options they can choose from. You know, do do they need outpatient treatment? Should their guns be taken? Should they be involuntarily committed? Um, these are all things that can that can happen. Yeah. And, so, uh, and, and by by contrast, the red flag laws. There's no due process, as you said. A person just says. Hey, I suspect this person. I'm uncomfortable with them, and they zap immediately. They lose their firearms, and it takes a very long time to have them reinstated, if ever. And so that's the contrast. No due process, which is part of our just part of our DNA in this country that we have a right to defend ourselves. Uh, so, so Nikki, let's come back. This stalker, and you have to pay for your own attorney. Can you imagine? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean. You know, attorneys can be really expensive. It can cost $10,000 or more. With the Baker Act, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Yeah. So the point That's not is... not the case with red flag laws. So, so you and uh, uh, I and me too, we are, we are saying it's not that people who are um, showing signs of danger uh, should not be restricted from having guns. That's not the point at all. It's that there is a law on the books in these states that's very effective, that's not being applied. So, Nikki, let's come back to your personal circumstances because uh, you're, I think the point of your testimony is that you're the guy that just murdered your husband in 2009 in your presence, uh, shot him so many times in the head in this gun-free zone, is getting out of prison in, what, a few years and um, so the point yeah. you're trying, you're talking, you talked in testimony about your own depression after this, your natural response to this tragic event. Um, and so uh, go ahead, please, and t- make your point for us that you made for the Senate committee. Sure. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I was depressed. As I testified, I, you know, who wouldn't be? That's a normal human reaction to something that horrific. Of course I had nightmares. Who wouldn't? Again, normal reaction to something that horrific. But, you know, I remember in those days after Ben's murder thinking, if I just happened to pass away in my sleep, I would be okay with that. Because I didn't know how I could face another day. Um, I was never suicidal. But you can see how someone may misinterpret that. So and you're, but and what you're saying, and what you're saying, but right, what I, what you're saying is that you then, potentially under these red flag laws, could be flagged as someone who doesn't should not be carrying a gun, right? Sure, and that would be devastating for someone like me. That would have compounded the problem and made my situation even worse if my ability to protect myself were stripped from me after this stalker violated me in such a horrific and life-altering way. That would be trauma on top of trauma for me. So how far, how strong is this push for these red flag laws, and who's pushing it? Oh, it's, I think it's strong. It's, it's bipartisan, Sandy. I mean, there's Republicans that support this. Look at Lindsey Graham. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's concerning. Who else testified yeah. in this hearing? And I'm assuming they were all in favor. Were you, the, were, the, were you the only person objecting to red flag laws? Yes, I was the only person objecting. It was a little bit intimidating being the only person, you know, taking that particular stance. You're in a room full of people and even 
people that are dialing in remotely and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm out here. I'm the only one that's taking this chance and you have to get kind of brave. You you do. Yes. But I understand you did a great job, Nikki. And especially given such a personal story that you have to tell uh, that's so personally painful. So here the bottom line is. And I want to make it, I just want to make it clear. I do not want dangerous people to have guns. But you know what? If they're truly dangerous, I don't want them to have access to a vehicle or matches or gasoline or a pressure cooker, quite frankly. They need to be confined to a mental health facility. Of course, these people deserve due process. But if someone is truly dangerous, so you take away their gun. They're still dangerous. Yes, they are. In other words, they're, uh, for instance, we found out with the jihadis uh, that they found creative things to do with knives. And so there are lots of ways to harm other people and to harm yourself besides guns. But guns are the focus. And, you know, I was just doing a little, uh, just reading this morning, preparing for you, and I uh, came across an article citing Noah Webster, who, of course, created our first dictionary. But he was also um, part one of our uh, one of our Federalists in the early days of the, of the Republic. He wrote a, a pamphlet in support of the Constitution. And he said, he wrote in this pamphlet, Before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed. As they are in almost every king, I'm going to say this again. Before a standing army can can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword, because the whole body of the people are armed. And so that was the idea of our founding fathers, that we would be armed and able to defend ourselves, all of us. Uh, When you flesh this out, it is bearing arms. It's like wearing them. Uh, that's part of who you are. You bear arms, and that makes you not subject to some ruling army, which is really the basis of what we're fighting for, Nikki. It may take the form of red flags, flag laws, but there's this move to chip away at the rights we have as given in our Constitution and our Second Amendment, and that's what you're fighting back for. Hey, let me just say that uh, Nikki, again, is working with Crime Research Center. That's John Lott's organization. He's a very good friend. He's a frequent guest. And you can find Nikki's testimony at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org, and also just her written testimony as well as her uh, the uh, the end of the video of her appearance at, at that hearing. Uh, Nikki, your book also uh, stalked and defenseless. I'm sure I'm sure that's available to people uh, on Amazon. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so Nikki, I we really appreciate. Uh, so how is your life now after losing having this horrible tragedy? How's your life now? You have 30, 30 seconds to tell me that that's answer. My stalker is now stalking and harassing me from prison. He's been sending me twisted love letters, and I got him charged. So it's going before federal court now. We'll see how it goes, but I'm, wow. I'm a fighter. I'm not going to yeah. let this bad guy take over my life. Yeah. And you sure, surely don't want to lose your firearm and your own personal defense, and so... Hey, Nikki, listen, we wish you all the best. I'm glad you landed with the Crime Research Center. That's crimeresearch.org with John Lott because you'll be great a partner with him fighting against these draconian uh, drug restrictions. Nikki Goser, thank you, Nikki. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.
Here's Pastor Jeff Shreve with From His Heart Ministries. We need to just say, Lord, I don't understand why these dark lines have come into my life, but I trust you because I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are good. See, I can come to a God like that who loves me, who's gentle, who's humble in heart. Learn the depth of God's goodness. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve on From His Heart each weeknight at 6 Central here on American Family Radio. And God wants and needs today some iron-souled saints, some men and women who are not going to wilt when the pressure's on. And the only way iron ever gets into our souls is when we go through the pressure cooker. Join Dr. David Jeremiah for his series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, next time on Turning Point. 5.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. Central on American Family Radio. When the wicked increase, transgression increases. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. California's Secretary of State has announced that the requisite threshold number of verified signatures needed to place a recall initiative on the ballot in California has now been satisfied. After imposing draconian COVID-related measures upon Californians, his treatment of churches like Grace Community Church in Los Angeles and North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, which pleaded for Newsom to relent after being fined thousands of dollars for meeting in their building, all while he dined publicly, mask-free, in expensive Napa Valley restaurants like the French Laundry. Californians have had enough. Gavin Newsom may become the next California governor recalled from office. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Brian Fisher here with the Life and Liberty Minute. On this year's National Day of Prayer, President Joe Biden offered remarks, as presidents do, but he left out the most important part, God himself. That's a fatal omission because there is no one else to pray to. While Biden talked about racial justice and climate change, he said not a word about God or Jesus Christ or Christianity, the belief system that brought America into being. As somebody said, Biden is taking a partisan wrecking ball to America's most sacred values. Isaiah referred to a people who worship God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from me. President Biden isn't even worse shaped than that. He apparently does not even want to worship God with his lips. Abraham Lincoln pointed out that only those those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. So who exactly is Joe Biden's God? Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Today is Jerusalem Day in Israel, a joyous occasion for the Jewish state, marking the anniversary of its liberation of the old city from Arabs who long routinely defiled and barred access to its many sites and tombs sacred to Jews and Christians. Palestinians are marking the day as they have much of the Islamic month of Ramadan with destructive attacks in the old city, riots outside the Temple Mount's Al-Aqsa Mosque, and rocket fire and incendiary balloons launched from the Gaza Strip controlled by the terrorist group. Hamas. Biden National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has responded to such Palestinian violence as Democrats have increasingly reflexively done, with moral equivalence between the perpetrators and the victims. The White House announced he called his Israeli counterpart to urge steps to, quote, ensure calm, de-escalate tensions, and denounce violence, unquote, counterproductive at best. This is Frank Gaffney. 
Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I grew up under communist dictatorship behind the Iron Curtain, under the boot of the Soviets. And I'm telling you, that's no fun at all. Um, mm. It was a disaster. Uh, police officers could break into your house five in the morning. They could beat you up, torture. They could arrest you for no matter what reason they would come up with. That was a famous saying in Poland when I was growing up by the police. Give me a man and we will find something on that man. So it was like a black, uh, you know, flashback when those police officers showed up at my church. Everything kind of came back to life from my childhood. And the only thing I could do is to fend off the wolves as a shepherd. And I used my voice to get rid of them. They were illegally uh, encroaching on our rights during the most holy days, during the Passover celebration. Uh, how dare they? Uh, the audacity of those people coming. It was a shocking thing. I was a little bit shaken, uh, but I did what every shepherd right now on the planet Earth should be doing, fend off the wolves. We as lions should never bow before the hyenas, and that's what they are right now. So I have been warning Canadians for the past 16 years that uh, that's what's coming. I could smell it. I could see it at every corner. The implementation of what we are seeing now, it, was, it started way, way uh, about 20 years ago. So uh, growing up under communist dictatorship, I mean, that's a disaster, and I see it already in our Western democracies. So the only way um, I know how to fight them is 1981 that I witnessed millions of Poles taking to the streets and saying to them, no more, get out of our country, get out, stop. Millions of Poles took it to the streets during solidarity, mm. like Valenza, and they won their freedom. Right now, if you want your freedom back, because we have to remember, history is teaching us that those people will never give up their new uh, gain powers. You got to right. demand those rights back. You have to fight for your rights. They'll never give it back to you freely. So how to do it? Get them out of your properties, out of your businesses, out of your churches. Open up. Open the churches. Clergymen should unite and start pushing this darkness away. And we should come and take to the streets and say no more lockdowns, no more restrictions. We will not put up with this anymore. We are fighting back. That was Artur Pawlowski. He's the, the pastor that I featured several times. Uh, and I mentioned earlier in the show, he's from Calgary, Canada. Uh, he resisted the uh, COVID restrictions in his church. And they came and uh, fined him. And now he has been arrested, dragged, literally dragged. Uh, seven, something, I think I counted seven police cars in the video that I watched. Uh, so um, uh, I don't know what his fate's going to be, but boy, he's a hero. And he tells you very clearly right there why you must stand up and fight. And we need to do it now. And that kind of ties with our discussion with Nikki, doesn't it, about our right to bear arms. I was reading earlier from, uh, this is WND News, and this is Brent Smith. He's talking about the Second Amendment, and I want to go back to what I alluded to with Nikki because it's worth kind of sitting on just for a second. Back to Noah Webster, uh, and of course, uh, the right to bear arms is the language of the Second Amendment, and so uh, Brent is just kind of exa examining what that means. And he says, Noah Webster was certainly in a position to know what the Second Amendment phrase, bear arms, meant. He was a prominent Federalist, and I'm going, to re, I'm going to restate what he said and what he wrote. He wrote in this pamphlet, <clears throat> Before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. 
The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the people are armed. So that was the idea behind the Second Amendment. Everyone should bear arms. Everyone. And that way the uh, armies, uh, the people that would rule you, will not be able to rule you because you can all fight back. And so um, in Webster's Dictionary, which was first published in 1828, uh, it defines bear. What does bear arms means? mean? It means to wear, to bear a mark of authority or distinction, as to bear a sword, a badge, a name, to bear arms in a coat. Uh, continuing to the word arms, weapons of offense or armor of defense and protection of the body. So according to Webster, bear arms is to carry or wear weapons openly or concealed. Uh, And then Thomas Jefferson wrote about this a bit. Uh, He's citing an Italian, uh, Cesare Beccari, who wrote an essay essay called Crimes and Punishments that greatly influenced our uh, Second Amendment. And this is what he wrote, that, uh, that Jefferson wrote, No free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. John Adams wrote about it as well. He wrote of the right of the arms in the hands of citizens to be used at individual discretion in private self-defense. And so uh, then there's the issue of having to register your weapon or obtain a license to carry. And uh, uh, see, Brent quotes Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz, as asking this question, and it's really worth thinking about. Uh, is this demand that you register your weapon or obtain a license an infringement of the Second Amendment? And the answer is yes. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz described it well. Would one need to register or obtain a license to exercise their religious or political beliefs or free association, such as the First Amendment delineates? Wouldn't you think it absurd to require a permit for objecting to unreasonable search and seizure? The bottom line is, of course, that these rights that we have in these amendments um, uh, don't we don't have to have a permit to exercise those rights. And so um, <clears throat> I wanted to share that with you. That's a, it's a great article by Brent Smith in WND. It's called The Second Amendment, What Does Bear Arms Really Mean? And I actually think we'll put that on our Facebook page so that you can, uh, you can um, access it. Okay, so several things are happening. I talked to you about uh, people around the country taking a hold of their where they live while they're not having such good luck in Washington State, the governor there has just signed a bill mandating critical race training in public schools. Jay Inslee. Um, it's a bill that incorporates the doctrine of equity, cultural competency, and dismantling institutional racism in the training for all K-12 through educators across the state. That's what people are fighting. Several states, in fact, Arizona just passed a law banning critical race theory. Uh, I think Mississippi did the same. There are other states. There's several, probably at least... I'm just guessing, off the top of my head, I'm thinking at least six or seven have done that, and there may be more. But here's a story that you may not know, and I want to share it with you. This, uh, For those of you that love Disneyland or Disney World, just listen to this. The Walt Disney Company's mission to entertain, inform, and inspire people will now include lectures about race and white privilege. According to Reimagine Tomorrow materials described as a diversity and inclusion program, the Walt Disney Company is teaching its employees that America was founded on systemic racism and encourages a new employee to take ownership of educating yourself about structural anti-black racism. The new training manuals also include concepts such as white privilege, 
white fragility, white saviors, microaggressions, and anti-racism. Additionally, the entertainment conglomerate urges its white employees to complete a white privilege checklist list during their employment. The United States has a long history of systematic racism and transphobia, the leaked documents claim, telling new employees that they should not rely on your black colleagues to educate you about race, which is emotionally taxing. White employees should, per the documents, work through feelings of guilt, shame, and defensiveness to understand what is beneath them and what needs to be healed. They should also not defend themselves, but listen with empathy to black colleagues and not question or debate black colleagues' lived experience. White employees should also not seek to advocate for equality, but only support measures that result in equity. And this is where uh, we've not just actually talked about this in detail, but equality versus equity. Equality is equality of opportunity. In other words, we're all free persons, regardless of color, color, living here. We have access to school and jobs and work, housing. But equity is uh, a redistribution. It is uh, making sure that every person of color uh, has the same outcome, regardless of uh, their what they have personally uh, done in their own lives. So uh, just a reward for color. So, so you know, housing that's equitable to the classic notion that whites are so privileged. Uh, so we will grant that to black persons, whether or not they individually worked for it or not. That's equity. Uh, and uh, I suppose that would be brown persons as well. But I think this is primarily driven by, uh, by um, the interests of black. Because, you know, the whole uh, business, remember the black teacher that was uh, calling the Mexican uh, policeman in California, uh, he, she called him terrible names. I don't think that, you know, brown people are included in this. I think it's mostly black in this whole ridiculous concept uh, that we have to fight. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.